Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you Praise God. Um, those of you who are in this uh, worship uh, center, you may be seated. Hallelujah. Amen. And so, Father, we want to thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you, Heavenly Father, for your faithfulness. As we open up our hearts to receive your word, Lord, let it do what you have purposed that it should do. Let it change our lives, transform our lives, empower us. Let it bring illumination, Heavenly Father. Uh, let it prepare us for what we're about to embrace, the new in our lives. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen and amen. Praise God. And let's appreciate uh, uh, Bumi for leading us to pray in the way that she did. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, why don't you turn in your Bibles to um, Joshua, the fifth chapter. Joshua, the fifth chapter. And if you want a title for today's message, um, the encounter would suffice. The encounter. Joshua the fifth chapter. I'm reading verses 13, 14, and 15. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? So he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy, and Joshua did so. Hallelujah. There's so much that we can learn from those few scriptures. The children of Israel had camped on the, at Gilgal, on the plains of Jericho, the city of Jericho was ahead of them to continue their journey into God's promises. They were now in the promised land, but to press on and take the land fully, they had to take the city of Jericho. And on this particular day, probably evening, because it was highly unlikely that he went out in the hot afternoon sun, 
Joshua was walking around Jericho, close to Jericho, by Jericho. And then he has this encounter with this man. And an intriguing conversation takes place. At the end of which he worships the man, bows down before him, and worships him. The first thing that strikes you is really Jericho. The problem, Jericho. In fact, if you go on to verse to chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible puts it in even clearer perspective. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. How were they, were they going to take Jericho? They didn't have what it took. They didn't have the right equipments. Maybe if they had things like battering rams to batter down the gates. Maybe if they had ladders to scale the wall or other equipment that would take them over the wall. Maybe there would have been a chance. What they had, swords, shields, maybe spares, were completely ineffective. And there was Jericho before them, impregnable, intimidating, mocking. Jericho was speaking loudly to them. You can't overcome me. You can't defeat me. I am the obstruction to your new. And someone might already understand because they have their own Jericho that they are dealing with. A problem that won't go away. A long-standing issue that defies solutions. An obstruction in your path. A mountain that simply won't move. It seems to be intractable. It seems like you can't surmount it. And when you look at the resources you have, the options available to you, they seem so small in comparison to the problem. They actually are ineffective. That was what the children of Israel were faced with. And as leader of the children of Israel, and let me speak to leaders, and all of us are leaders in one sphere or another, the responsibility seems to rest on your shoulders. The family is looking up to you. The children are looking up to you. The team is looking up to you. The friends are looking up to you. The office is looking up to you. And this thing just doesn't seem to be able to move. It's literally standing there and mocking you. Someone understands what I'm talking about. That was Jericho. 
The Bible says, because of the children of Israel, it was shut up. It was closed. Number two. The Bible then tells us that Joshua was by Jericho. He was walking around. He wasn't cowering in fear in the camp at Gilgal. He was not overcome with despondency at the problem, the challenge, the difficulty, the situation. He wasn't paralyzed and doing nothing. He hadn't thrown up his hands and said, giving up, what can I do? He certainly wasn't throwing a pity party for himself, feeling so sorry for himself. And he wasn't blaming God. God, how come I'm in this situation? How come we are in this situation? Aren't we your people? Don't you have a plan for us? How come we can't go any further? We have this obstruction before us. He was, the Bible says, doing something, walking around Jericho. Certainly the outskirts of it, but close enough for the Bible to tell us he was by Jericho. So what was he doing? He wasn't just walking. He was working. He was doing something. He was firstly going on some sort of reconnaissance. He was surveying the city. He was mulling over the challenge. He was gathering information. He could have been paralyzed in the camp doing nothing, overcome by the challenge, but not Joshua. He was working. A bit like Nehemiah, when he was faced with the enormous problem of the state of his home, Jerusalem. The Bible tells us in Nehemiah, the second chapter, verses 12 to 16, this is his account, Nehemiah. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. They had told him this was the case. But Nehemiah thought, you know what? Let's get the information. Let's be factual. Let's be correct. Let's make sure it's not fake news. It's not a rumor. It's not someone putting forward their own plan, their own agenda, driving their own agenda. Let's get the correct information. Let's be diligent enough. Let's work at it. Let's apply ourselves. So he goes out at night. He says, Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. 
I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. There's a responsibility on a leader to get the information right before you tell your people. Exactly what Joshua did, Nehemiah did. So he was out there by Jericho doing a some sort of reconnaissance, surveying, gathering information, preparing himself. And isn't that what we're supposed to do? Be diligent in our preparation. God is not a magician. He chooses not to be. He's in a partnership with us. Do your part. God will do his part. And Joshua was doing his part. What else was he doing? I believe he was certainly praying and meditating. Because that's who he was. A man of prayer. He understood the word of God. So what was he doing as he, as he was by Jericho? As he looked at those walls. Those walls were speaking to him. In words that were not audible, but words that were clear. What do you think he was doing? I can tell you certainly that he was speaking words back to those walls. He was speaking words back to Jericho. And that's how we face our challenges. Our challenges speak at us. They tell us it's not going to happen. It's not going to open. It's not going to change. There won't be a reverse. But we speak God's word back at the challenges. We meditate on God's words. And I can imagine Joshua walking around and, and, and meditating and remembering all the victory that God had brought them. Remembering how he stood with Moses and he saw Moses lift his hand with the rod and the Red Sea parted. I can imagine Joshua encouraging himself in the Lord and saying, the God who took us through that Red Sea is going to bring you down, Jericho. This wall, you look impregnable, but the God who delivered us from Egypt with those 10 plagues is going to bring you down. Jericho, you are history because the word of God in me tells me you are history. And I guess Joshua was speaking the word. Speak the word against that Jericho until Jericho moves. Number three, the Bible says he lifted up his eyes and looked. Of course, when you're overcome with challenges, you tend to be engrossed in those things. And I suspect at a certain time, Joshua walking around would have, as is typical, when we are weighed down and thinking, he would have had his eyes on the ground. And whenever he took his eyes, lifted his eyes up, he would have lifted his eyes to observe the challenge. So between looking at the ground as he thought and looking at the challenge that Jericho was, but at some point, he lifted up his eyes from the ground to the challenge, but continued lifting his eyes above the challenge. I want to say to you, my brother, my sister, it's time you have done well, and I hope you have, in mulling over it thinking about it, wondering how it will happen, looking at your resources in relation to it and knowing that your resources can do it. You have tried all the options. You have looked at the challenge. 
But the time comes when you must lift your eyes above the challenge and look to the one who will help us. And when he lifted his eyes, the Bible says he saw a man standing there. If he had not lifted his eyes, even though the man was standing there, he would not have seen the man. Some of us are so embroiled in the circumstances and we are wondering where Jesus is. The man was standing there. He just had to lift his eyes up. Can I say to someone, lift your eyes up. The man is standing there. He can be trusted. The psalmist says in Psalms 121 verses 1 and 2, I will lift my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The historians tell us that the writer of that hymn, of that psalm, wrote the psalm as he was journeying to Jerusalem. And it was a long journey. <clears throat> and in the distant, he saw the hills of Jerusalem. That was his destination. The hills of Jerusalem beckoned to him. But then he was getting tired. He needed some sustenance, some encouragement to continue to the hills that beckoned to him where he was going to worship in Jerusalem. And so apparently he penned that psalm. He says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. I will look at the hills of Jerusalem. I will see them encouraging me to come. But I will know that my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I will reach Jerusalem in the distance because of God who made heaven and earth. As you put your trust in him, as the vision beckons, the new calls, the future pulls you. As you might get tired and weary, sometimes you might despair because of the weight, the journey. I want to encourage you to lift your eyes like Joshua to the God who will help you, the God who made heaven and earth. And as you do that, I speak the rest of that psalm into your life. Because this was the encouragement that came to the sojourner, that came as, as he journeyed towards Jerusalem. When he lifted his eyes to God, the word of God came to encourage him. And this encouragement, let it be for someone who is on that journey and somehow is getting tired. He will not allow your foot to be moved. Psalms 121 verses 3 to 8. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. 
The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even evermore. And I say an amen to that. that. Number four. Number four. He looked up and he saw a man. Number four. A man with his sword drawn. <laughs> Who was this man? It's obvious this man was not an angel. It's obvious he was not an angel because no angel will accept worship. Revelations 19 verse 10 tells us that from any human being. And as Joshua worshipped, the man accepted the worship. So who was this man? We understand that this was a Christophany, that this was pre-incarnate Christ. And there are many examples of pre-incarnate Christ coming before he was to come. And you know what I say to people? I say this is such an example of the grace of God. That Christ knew that he's not supposed to come. But when there was dire need, it was almost like Christ got permission from God. I'm not supposed to go yet until I come into Mary's womb to come. But somebody needs me. Can I go? Joshua needs me. Israel needs me. So I know my, uh, my spirit, your spirit, the spirit is moving. I know you're in charge, but Lord, can I just go and have an encounter with Joshua to encourage him? May you have an encounter with God that will transform your life. And so pre-incarnate Christ comes. He introduces himself as commander of the Lord's army. One translation says prince of the Lord's hosts. And his sword was drawn. <laughs> that was to signify that we're not just here just to visit. We are here for war. I have come as the man of war, the commander of the Lord's army, the Lord of hosts, the commander of the heavenly battalions, the prince of the hosts of heaven, I have come. I am ready for battle. The Lord is ready for battle on your behalf. Number five, whose battle was it? The exchange between Joshua and this man is an intriguing one. When Joshua saw him with his sword drawn, <laughs> if you were not sure about the kind of heart that Joshua had, you know, they say today when someone is bold, they say the person has a liver. Yeah? A lion's heart. Joshua had a lion's heart. How many of you would be taking a walk in the evening and you suddenly see a man standing with a sword drawn? How many of you be truthful? What would be your response? Run in the opposite direction. But Joshua was a leader. 
when he saw the man with the sword drawn, he wanted to find out. I guess he wanted to find out before he attacked the man. Whose side are you on? Make it known. He approached the man and he said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? <laughs> I like Joshua. If the man had said for your, for your adversaries, I guess Joshua, the war had already started. Joshua was attacking him. The man's response gets your attention. He said, no, some translations say neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. His response to Joshua was, Joshua says, are you for me or for the enemies? Are you for us or for them? And the man says, that's a bit belittling. We don't do for you or for them. We do for us. I am here not for you or for them. I am here to fulfill God's plan and God's purpose. The battle is not about you, Joshua. Don't elevate yourself to that, that height. The battle is the Lord's. It's about God's battle. And God has, I have come to fight the Lord's battle. You know, a lot of us are going through stuff and we really have such a high opinion of ourselves that we think the stuff is about us. Don't give yourself, don't, 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 don't gas yourself up. Don't, 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 don't get high on your own, on your own, uh, your own PR. It's a bit more than you. It's God, his battle, and you should be glad that it is his battle. Take encouragement from another young man who understood this reality, David. One Samuel 17, verses 45 to 47. As he came against his own Jericho, the Philistine, Goliath, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David said it's not a personal thing. <laughs> it, you have defied God, not me. If you can make your challenge a God thing, step back and watch God step in. Part of the challenge is that a lot of us have personalized it. And in doing so, we have in a sense tied God's hands. David said, you think your taunting and intimidating the army of Israel is about Israel? No, 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 no. It's about God. And he says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's what it's about. You're going to be healed so that they may know that you serve a healer. You will be delivered so that they know that you serve a deliverer. He will come through for you so that you can testify 
that this is the God of Israel, my God who came through on my behalf. It's about him. He goes on to say, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Hallelujah. And what was Joshua's response? What was Joshua's response? The Bible says Joshua, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? <laughs> Joshua fell on his face and worshipped and said, what does my Lord say to his servant. Number six, Joshua's response. There were two responses from Joshua. Number one was worship. And that must be our response to the biggest challenges we face. We must build altars of worship that God finds irresistible. We must create a throne with our worship that is so attractive to God. We must use our words, our lives, to be like precious stones that the throne is made with so that when God sits in heaven, he has no choice. The irresistible pull of the throne that has been created by our worship is so attractive that he says to them, I, I have to go and sit on that throne. And so we understand instantly that worship is not just a song or some songs that we sing. The irony is that we don't even get that basic right. We sometimes see that slot in a service as perfunctory. Our minds are everywhere but where they should be. We don't even connect. Sometimes we go in a mechanical way through the song. Let's be truthful to ourselves. But it's a bit more than that. Because true worship has to be the the, the entirety of a person worshiping God. So my worship is religious if it's confined to a service and I can't worship him with everything that I do. I can't worship him at the gym and worship him when, I, when I'm out having a meal and worship him with my words and worship him with my action. My whole life worships him. That's how Jesus was. His whole life worshiped God. Now that kind of worship is what Jesus said to the woman at the well God was looking for. I'm looking for this kind of sincerity of worship, purity of worship, a worship that is not demarcated and separated, but where a person's whole life worships God. I worship him in thought, in word, and in deed. That is true worship. 
So when he talks about the Lord looking for such in John the fourth chapter, verses 23 and 24, that's what he's talking about. And so if there's an area of my life that hasn't been submitted to the Spirit of God, I can't fully worship God because my worship is disjointed. And then he submitted to him. His response, worship and then submission. That's how we face our challenges, our Jerichos. We build such amazing altars of worship. We worship with our entire life. And then we submit to him. And there's a power in submission. That's why the enemy wants, to do, wants us to do the exact opposite. Because he understands that with God there's a power in submission. We learn from the mother of our Savior. When she had her encounter and was told the miraculous thing that was about to take place. Something that had never happened before. It didn't make sense. How will it happen? Was her question. And it was a legitimate question. When she was told it would happen by the power of the Spirit. What was her response in Luke 1, the 38th verse? She said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And it was a done deal. <laughs> as soon as she said that, you know when something locks together, there's nothing that could have stopped it. Jesus was on his way. Because she understood submission. She understood that submission doesn't mean my senses understand it. Sometimes my senses don't understand. I can't get it in my senses. It doesn't make sense. But if you say, if it's God, then let it happen how you have said. I submit to that. It's the same thing that, that happened to the Apostle Paul when he had his encounter, dramatic encounter, knocked off a horse. A voice speaking and no one knew where it was coming from. Lightning striking him. And when he knew it was God, he had his encounter. What was his response in Acts the ninth chapter and the sixth verse? The Bible says, trembling and astonished. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm submitted. What do you want me to do? So of course, we submit to his will. Jesus, the perfect example, wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane. His entire being, not wanting to go in, his, in the, the humanity of him, not wanting to go to the death at the cross. But what is that famous phrase? Not my will, but your will. May we say that. Not my will, Lord, but your will. I will do what you want, Lord. I submit to it. We submit to his spirit. We yield to his spirit. Submit to his spirit. We do it daily. The person who is going to overcome is the one who submitted to the spirit of God. Of course, the sons of God, are, those are the ones that are led by the spirit of God. And then we submit to his word. 
What did Mary submit to it was his word. The angel said, this is, the, this is what we have come with, a message from God. Mary said, let it happen as you have said. Oh, may we have more Christians who will be saying to the word of God, exactly as it says. Number seven, the last point, and we're done. As soon as he worshipped, and as soon as he submitted, the Lord now spoke to him. And what did God say to him? Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. All this was before Jericho fell. What was the word to him? Take your sandals or your sandal off. What is the import of that statement? Your sandal, or your sandals, whichever word. You worn your feet. You'd stepped into all kinds of dirt and muck. It was symbolic of that. Now he had an encounter with the living God. He was now having an encounter with the person of God, the holiness of God. And so the instruction was get rid of the filth, get rid of the murk, get rid of the dirt, take them off before we can go further. In our modern day expression of Christianity, we, we sing about a lot of things. And we speak about a lot of things about God. But increasingly, we are speaking less and less about the holiness of God. And how can that be? When the very core of God, the very essence of God is His holiness. It is almost like there is a conspiracy to try and make holiness a word that is ancient and archaic. Haven't you noticed in our modern expressions of God, we love the God that is caring, we love the God that is compassionate, we love the God that is loving. If you're out of Africa, you love the God that is a fighter. We love those aspects of God. We love the God that is strong. We love the God that is mighty. But we are a bit uncomfortable with this issue of holiness. And the reason we're uncomfortable with it is because we think it is too high a standard. So we think this issue of holiness, let's, let's just love God. Let's love His, you know, the other parts of God. All those other parts of God spring from two things. God is love and God is holy. Is it any wonder when the Bible paints a picture of the worship of God in heaven? In Revelations, the fourth chapter and the eighth verse, and those awesome beasts of worship are flying around the throne of God night and day. I don't know how long, maybe from eternity past, certainly into eternity future. Night and day, flying around the throne and they could have been saying many things. Mighty, mighty, mighty is the Lord. Compassionate, compassionate, compassionate is the Lord. Kind, kind, kind is the Lord. 
powerful, powerful, powerful is the Lord. And they would have been right. But there was one thing they said. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And one of the commentators has said that the reason they said that was because every time God moved, they saw another dimension of his holiness. And so day and night, these beasts of worship are saying one thing. He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. The holiness of, church, of God needs to come back to his church. And what is this holiness, just so we understand it? At its core, whether in the Hebrew or the Greek, what it means is set apart, separate, distinct. That's what it means. And God says to you and I, in 1 Peter 1 verses 15 and 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. That's a scripture that a lot of people don't like. Because what they think is that God is asking them for perfection. And who can be perfect? But God is not asking us for perfection in that sense. He's not asking us, I mean, what kind of God would he be that sets an examination that we are guaranteed to fail? Be holy. Because that's how I am. That's how you relate to me. And all of us fail the exam. But the reason we fail the exam is because we are trying in our own strength by discipline to reach perfection. But God does not ask us for that. He's worked it all out. He knew you couldn't measure up. I can't measure up. So he says, don't worry. I will give you righteousness. I will impute it to you. My son will pay the price. You can't, you can't pay the price. And when he pays the price, then automatically by receiving him, you become holy, right? But then how can we maintain it? He says, don't worry. I've got that covered as well. I will give you my spirit. As long as you submit to my spirit, he will help you to do what you cannot naturally do. So my brother... You don't have to be caught in that sin. My sister, you can get out of where he puts you. You don't have to, every time he phones you, your life falls apart. Once you hear his voice on the phone, baby, can we meet up tonight? You know that is over. You're going to be repenting again. You don't have to. You have a choice. You can be holy. But then don't, don't try, don't think you can do it by unfriending him. No, he has many lives. He will appear somewhere, meet you, some, meet you somewhere. Don't, don't think you can do it by deleting him. No, you can't delete him from this earth except you kill him. You're going to see him at your friend's party. You're going to smell somebody else's cologne that will remind you of him. And even if you don't see him, he will live rent-free in your head. So how can I overcome it? I can overcome it by the Spirit. I can be holy by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God can help me if I desire to live right, to live right. 
I can be distinct and separate from the world by the Spirit of God. We have a version of Christianity now that wants to be like the world. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Crazy. God says you're, uh, you're, you're different. You're a holy nation. You're peculiar. We say no. We don't want to be peculiar. We want to be like the world. Hallelujah. Take your sandal off. God says, we can't relate with those sandals on. Take it off. And all this before Jericho. And next week, we'll find out about Jericho itself. Go and give God a clap offering. <laughs> Hallelujah. 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 Father, we thank you and bless you. Lord, help us so that we take your word, we, we study it, we, we implement it in our lives, we prepare ourselves. And for anyone who's got that Jericho before you, by the grace of God, that, that, that Jericho is crumbling in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's anyone out there who doesn't have a relationship with this awesome God that we've spoken about, what an opportunity. He's knocking on the door of your heart. If there's anyone in here, you don't have a relationship with him, he's knocking on the door of your heart. All you've got to do is open the door. How do I open the door? I hear someone ask. By accepting the gift of salvation that his son Jesus is. Like I said, he's done it all for you. He's paid the price already. Bought the gift just receive it. How do I receive it? By confessing that he's my Lord and my Savior. That I give my life to him. And by believing your confession. And so if there's anybody out there, anybody in here, who's saying, I want to start that relationship, just pray this prayer after me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus Christ. Today, I receive him into my life as my Lord and Savior. I commit to turning away from anything sinful in my life as I receive grace by your Spirit to live a holy life. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. I will remember today, the day I was born again into your family. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hallelujah.